Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, here's a quick heads up to save the date, December 1st through 4th, for our Thriving Farmer Summit, Value Added. If you're looking to add income to your farm with simple, proven strategies, go to www.farmsummits.com and drop your email. Our summit series have been viewed by over 100,000 farmers and get rave five-star reviews. In this summit, we'll share detailed strategies for farm ferments, herbal foraging, tinctures, pickles, farm kitchens, foodscaping, mushroom jerky, and mushroom kits, developing add-on shares for your CSA, how to publish books with your farm story, starting your own USDA processing plant, and starting a farmer co-op. Over 35 speakers are sharing their wisdom. Go to farmsummits.com to reserve your spot today. Thanks to Harvest Host for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Harvest Host provides a cost-free opportunity for small businesses and farms to increase revenue simply by inviting self-contained RV members to stay one night on their property. In return, members patronize or donate to the business. Well-established hosts are reporting on an average of 15000 in annual additional revenue. For more information on how you can become a host or a member, contact Harvest Hosts today at harvesthosts.com. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today our guest is Julie Guthman. Julie Guthman is a geographer and professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where she conducts research on the conditions of possibility for food system transformation in the U.S. Her most recent book, Wilted, Pathogens, Chemicals, Fragile Future of the Strawberry Industry was a recipient of the 2020 American Association Geographers Meriden Award for Outstanding Scholarly Work in Geography. Her prior publications include two multi-award winning monographs, an edited collection, about 50 peer-reviewed journal articles, and dozens of other book chapters, book reviews, commentaries, and public-facing pieces. Currently, she is a principal investigator of the UCAFTER project, a multi-campus collaboration exploring Silicon Valley's recent forays into food and agriculture. Julie doesn't farm, but she does like to eat. Welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So you have spent your life researching. And did that something you always wanted to do from school? Or how did you kind of start diving into doing this? Actually, this was my third career. This I did not start off thinking I would be a professor or a researcher. Um, but it all comes around. I started off um, doing uh, community organizing after college. And thereafter, okay. thereafter, I worked in nonprofit financial management. And, um, and then really I was, I was traveling a lot and, um, I should say that when I had been an organizer, I had, um, worked a lot in, um, California's agricultural zones. And I'd always Mm. been really curious about agriculture and my father was a health food nut from the fifties. And so I was always, had always grown up with someone who talked a lot about food and had a lot of food advice. So when I decided for various reasons to go back for a PhD fairly late in into life, I mean, I was in my mid thirties. Mm. Um, I didn't really know that I was going to work on agriculture and food, but um, it was in the context of taking a seminar um, on the restructuring of the global food system Mm. that I decided to work on food. And the story there is we were asked to do group projects on some world food commodity. And my team asked our professor, do you mind if we do something on something more more regional or local? Can we work on like um, salad mix or organics in California? And he was all for that. Mm. And so this was, this was the... Um, I want to say, was it late 80s or early 90s? It was late 80s. Okay. No, that's not correct. It was early 90s. Um, And uh, so we, uh, you know, there was three of us in this group and we just started talking to farmers around 
the, the central coast area, Santa Cruz, Salinas, and, and, and some further afield. And we talked to suppliers and retailers and, and we realized that really no one had written any social science work on organics and that plunged us in. Um, and that became my, it ended up being my dissertation project in the basis of my first book. So again, it all kind of came around because my father had been very much into organics. He had followed people in the soil association, mm -hmm. never something I thought I would do as a profession, which is to do research on food and agriculture. And here I am mm. years later and still doing it. So what does your research process look like? What does my research process look like? Um, well, I am not an agronomist um, or a soil scientist. I don't do I don't do scientific studies of food and agriculture. I'm a I'm a social scientist. Mm. That means I spend um, a lot of time looking at what at what people say about what they're doing. And so I, you know, in these days, I might look at websites or whatever. Or my current project, where we're looking at Silicon Valley, I might go. We're going to events, and I might go to events and see what people are saying. But a big basis of my research has been interviews, mm. talking to farmers or activists or whoever about their perspectives, motivations, thoughts about what they're doing. So that's the basis of most of my research. It's called qualitative social science research. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, strawberries, because that's your most recent book. Mm -hmm. What what caused you to write a book about strawberries? Um, well, I've been interested in strawberries since I first started doing research on organics um, mm. in the early uh, 90s. And part of it is because one of the conclusions I found in my first book, which was called Agrarian Dreams, mm -hmm. um, is that um, a lot of the movement into organics among California farmers was responding to the high land values of California and the need to get more um, uh, revenue from any given piece of land. And so they were moving from commodity crops into organics, maybe with something in between, maybe mm -hmm. you know, a, a specialty crop as opposed to cotton, um, and then going to organics because they needed to make more money. But in turn, I argued that the um that the Organics was actually contributing to high land values as well, because if you can grow organic, if it's, you know, you have certified piece of land that that might raise the cost of land. So I, I kind of came to that conclusion of the, this kind of land is this kind of, so I came across land as this really important variable to think about and what shapes farming practices and how it affects what can be done. And so, and part of that conclusion came from, you know, I think what, what this is going, again, this is going way back to my earlier research. One of the first places I, um, I visited doing interviews was I was, inter I was interviewing people up in Napa and I was thinking, why are people growing organics in this extraordinarily valuable mm. agricultural land, right? Where you can grow these very expensive, you know, grapes for, or grapes for very expensive wines. And it occurred to me that organics was allowing people to hold on to that kind of land. And then strawberry was kind of the same thing because mm. um, strawberries are grown abutting urban environments um, where there's a lot of pressure on land values. So I, and, and strawberries are a very, very high value crop. Um, so that was my original motivation for working on strawberries, but then um, it was reignited um, about, oh, 12 years ago now when there were this, um, this huge battle over the registration of the soil fumigant methyl iodide. This took place in California. So methyl iodide was brought on the market or attempted to be brought on the market to replace methyl bromide, which was... The, the chemical most widely and deeply used in California strawberries. It enabled, it, it made California's, so methyl iodide was introduced to replace methyl bromide. And methyl bromide was a chemical on which the strawberry industry was built mm. as a way to con control soil pathogens as well as weeds and nematodes. And so, um, but methyl bromide was an ozone 
was designated an ozone depleting substance um, by the International Montreal Protocol. And so, um, so that really was threatening the strawberry industry. And for a long time, the US was able to defer a phase out of methyl bromide because the strawberry industry lobbied very hard to mm-hmm. have that. But the writing was on the wall that methyl bromide was going to be disallowed. And so people were desperately looking for a replacement for methyl bromide and they hit upon methyl iodide that is a chemical chemical had been around, but a researcher at UC Riverside reintroduced it and licensed it to Arista Life Sciences. Um, And it was extremely controversial because unlike methyl bromide, which is an ozone depleting substance would dissipate into the atmosphere, methyl iodide would stay closer to the ground, good Mm. for the atmosphere, but not good for the people who are around the fumigation. Yeah. so, you know, farm workers and neighbors and and schools, hospitals, whatever. So a big battle to not allow California's Department of Pesticide Regulation to register it. Um, and what was in, intriguing to me about this battle is it was a wide coalition of um, anti-pesticide activists and public health activists and teachers and um, foodies and farm workers. And mm. I've been studying food movements for a while. And I found that that combination of stakeholders to be really unusual and coming together to fight a big battle over regulation as opposed to just like creating an alternative like, like organics. So, mm. I, so I, what, I was really intrigued by that. And that's what got me into researching strawberries is understanding the regulatory battles around methyl bromide and then thereafter chloropicrin as well because chloropicrin was designated a toxic air contaminant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then, I mean, and both of those chemicals are quite, you know, they respiratory illness, lung tumors, miscarriages, birth defects, thyroid, hormone, carcinogens, neurotoxins. So these are just not good things, but our thirst for strawberries as a nation has caused this to just gotten an almost a turn to a blind eye because of the profit potential on the back end. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're all these, I mean, strawberries are a really um, pesticide intensive crop. And mm-hmm. I, you know, my research was really about the soil fumigants, which don't even affect, you know, they're, they're not on the, I want to be clear, they're not on the crop. They're not, there's no residues of soil fumigants. The soil fumigants go into the ground pre-plant um, to, uh, to kill soil-borne pathogens. Um, but yeah, I mean, when you, once you can fumigate and knock out these soil pathogens that in the in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s were mm-hmm. really badly affecting strawberry growers, you can start. You wouldn't have to rotate strawberries from a piece of part, one piece of land to another. You can grow strawberries year after year on the same block, mm-hmm. right? Which yeah. is which is huge. Right. If they're yeah. a high value crop and otherwise you're rotating it with a lower value crop, if you can grow it on the same crop year after on the same block year after year, you're going to be much more profitable. Yeah. But then a bunch of other things kicked in. So um, so starting in the 1940s, um, University of California ag researchers, plant breeders um, had been or, or the, I should say the University of California was brought on to deal with the many problems that strawberry growers were facing as they were becoming a little bit more of an industry in the 30s and 40s. This is the 1930s and 40s, obviously. And um, uh, plant breeding was one of the things they were doing. Um, and you know, at one point in history, it's no longer the case, the University mm-hmm. of California was... Um, breeding about 95% of the cultivars used in strawberries. Um, And so once you had methyl bromide or you had this, the methyl bromide used to be used in combination with chloropicrin, but once you had that combination, you didn't have to breed for pathogen resistance anymore. And so they were able to double down on breeding for productivity um, and shelf life and color and size and all these other qualities, both production qualities that growers wanted and consumer qualities that consumers presumably wanted the color and size. They didn't breed as much for flavor and they didn't have to worry about this other stuff, right? And they could also start growing, once you had the fumigation, you could also not only grow the crop 
year after year in the same block, but you could breed you could breed the crop have really long seasons. And so they started, um, they already had done this, but they were breeding for um, like short day varieties so they can plant in early spring and, and day neutral varieties for a longer season. And so rather than having strawberries be a three week crop, as it mm. is in many regions, yeah. strawberries in the ground being harvested for in some places, nine or 10 months a year. Wow. So, which again, makes it much more profitable. Yeah. So that's how they can support the $100,000 an acre crop exactly. land out there is because, yeah. you know, you're harvesting, you know, pallets and pallets of strawberries. Now, is it true that when strawberries are harvested, they then are put in a reefer truck and then driven continuously to the East Coast? I mean, it's like a 24-hour trip, right? Um, I do not know the answer to that question. Yeah. I was told that. I forget who I was told that by. I think it was from, I think, actually, you know what? I think it was Amigo Bob who actually was a- uh, I know Amigo Bob, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think we were sitting together at a conference in New York in New York when he told me that, just about the whole, how that all works yeah. and just how much money came out of strawberry production. Yeah, now talk to us a little bit about the impact on workers because obviously 99% of the California strawberry industry is run by, is it H2A or is a lot of those locals now too? Um. H2A is more recent, and mm. I can tell you about that. So, you know, strawberries have never been a good deal for workers. Um, it's a very, it's one of the most uncomfortable jobs because it, 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 up to this point, it's changing now, but up to this point, most strawberries are planted close to the ground. And, um, you know, strawberries are perishable and, and rot easily. And so th they've um, worked very hard to have a, compliant workforce that'll be pick, be careful what they pick and toss strawberries that are are look bad or aren't ready yet and pick the best ones and do this quickly and 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 stra so strawberries are extremely labor intensive and the more you have the more plants you have I mean the more you excuse me the more um, productive the plant is the more labor you need right mm -hmm. um, and so but the strawberry industry to be profitable, has to have the most compliant and cheap labor force it can have. And, and one of the problems is there's a lot of, of that $100,000 it costs to grow an acre right now. Mm. I, don't, I don't know what the exact percentage is these days, but it's a, probably at least 50%, if not 60% labor. But the rest is there's a lot of ground preparation before any, any strawberries pick. So you're already investing 40,000, let's say, an acre, into preparation. And so if that strawberry doesn't get picked, that's a big loss. So they yeah. really need to have a compliant labor force, labor force. So for a long time, you know, US immigration policy um, worked well for the industry by um, using a lot of undocumented workers, frankly, um, who would not complain um, if, uh, you know, there was pesticide violations or wage theft or whatever. Um, and that worked well. And the, the strawberry industry also for a long time uh, depended on people's social networks, their families from coming and going from Mexico. Um, but that, and the other thing the strawberry industry did um, to uh, reduce or to manage your labor costs is they developed a way of, um, of uh, paying on peace rates, right? So um, rather than paying people out, you know, a flat hourly wage, they incentivize productivity by paying people by the crate, but they still have to meet minimum wage laws unless they're cheating. And mm -hmm. so they, they, the, the crate rates are set so that you have to work really, really fast to make that minimum wage. And if you can't make that minimum wage, you're basically laid off. So mm -hmm. So if you go through strawberry fields, you'll see people running through the fields to pick those strawberries. Um, you know, and they're, you know, they're using both hands. They're going really, really quick and running back to load it on the truck. Mm -hmm. Anyways, I'm telling you this because in part because things have changed and now the strawberry industry is facing labor shortages in a big way. Uh, that's at least the, one of the biggest complaints of growers. And so I've heard many growers talk about, well, 
um, you know, you can't get compliant workers anymore. They just walk off the job. Um, if they see something better or they before they'll even come and work for you, they'll look at your fields to see how many if you're how many strawberries are on the plant and if they're your fields are robust and they like fumigation because it makes for more mm -hmm. um, bountiful plants. And if they don't like it, they'll they'll leave or if they do like it, they'll call their friends. And so the, the workforce isn't as loyal anymore. So the growers say. So um so and I mean and labor costs have gone way up. California does um is in no, I mean, it's a raise the minimum wage, no longer um, allows exemptions for overtime laws. Workers' comp has gotten up. So, I mean, the labor costs are real. I don't doubt that. And consumers expect to have the strawberries at, at you know, quite reasonable mm -hmm. prices. So it's not like the growers are, are horrible here. I mean, they're squeezed, but they're squeezed on the backs of laborers. And now... They're now, you know, they say there's labor shortages. And so now they're de depending more on the H2A program, mm -hmm. which is a guest worker program. But they don't like that particularly because they have to pay for housing and transport. And so a lot of in one area of California, Santa Maria, which is the, the one area where strawberry production is actually growing in California, a lot of the motels there have been converted into H2A housing. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's so that's so important. Now, one of the things in your book, you show just the wide range of places strawberries are grown in California, all the way from up right at the tippity top, all the way down almost to Mexico. Yeah. But you have obviously Salinas is the hot spot. And then you've got down by Santa Barbara and Ventura. Why the different locations? Are there different times of the year? Or is it just all the different areas that they'll grow? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, I mean, the main the main strawberry growing regions are in um, Santa Cruz County and Monterey County. So that's Watsonville, mm -hmm. Salinas, and then down in Santa Maria, which and into San Luis Obispo. So that, but Santa Maria is it, it borders um, like the, the um, San Luis Obispo mm -hmm. and um, Santa Barbara counties, and then you have Oxnard. Um, some strawberries are still grown in um, San Diego County, but it's a very urban county. Um, so those are the main, that's where most of the fruit production is. And yes, it's, you have them in different regions to take advantage of the different, um, you know, climatic advantages. And so in the winter, you start south and mm -hmm. then the bulk of it moves northward. But in, in Salinas and and Watsonville and Pajaro Valley, so that's on the central coast. It's still a very long season. They're they're starting to harvest late March, um, and I'm still seeing strawberries in in the markets now in November. And so they have they have they can have they'll have up to an eight or ten month season. It's much shorter in Oxnard, and kind of more like a six month season in Santa Maria. Mm. Um, but the, the map in the book you're referring to also refers to nursery production. And that's a whole nother game, right? Uh, so yes. Grown in the, in, the, in the prime fruit growing regions for propagating plants. They're going to other regions with different climatic advantages. So, for instance, the, um, the starts and the, 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 the starts, which are done in greenhouses where the strawberries can't touch the ground. A lot of that happens in the far north of California, um, like in the um, Lassen area around Red Bluff and Redding, for those of your listeners who know the area. And it's not exactly, I mean, well, it, the, okay, no, there is a reason it's there. The, I mean, when they start, when they first put it in, when they're first pro propagating the meristems, they're doing it in an indoor environment, but then they propagate it in the propagate plants in soil. Um, and they do that over a, a course of a couple of years. And so they do that um, in up north because that it gets really, really cold around October. They, there's this one area called Medul Valley, which is in the far northeast of California. Mm -hmm. And um, that's where they do a lot of plant propagation. And so they'll, they'll 
grow these plants all summer and then October they'll pull them, chill them, and then ship them down to the south and the and the strawberry plants wake up and say, oh, it's spring. It's time for us. They, they feel the air and they go, oh, it's spring. And so they've been able to shorten that season. They also propagate a lot of plants in the Central Valley, but it's way too hot to grow fruit there, except for a couple months a year. Uh, okay. So, yeah. So they have different mm -hmm. kind of propagation regions depending on when they're planting the fruit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, so you've mentioned the, the methyl bromide and, and that, but then you also mentioned that they're highly sprayed. Talk to us a little bit about just the amount of pesticides that are going on a California strawberry. Yeah, um, I don't have a, a good sense of the amount. It's not something I looked at closely. Okay. I do know that strawberries have an intense um, regime more than other any other planets. And I think it's the number one in the yeah. um, environmental working groups, 30 dozen. And it includes um, like uh, antifungals and, and pesticides. And mm -hmm. I think there's four major chemicals, but it's not something I looked at closely. And I think part of the reason is because they are such a long crop. If you're going to run any crop for that long, you're going to have to try to keep them alive and, and happy somehow. And so just the yeah. amount of a 10 month season, I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, I think that's why we can get such a premium price for our strawberries here in Ohio. And I know a lot of other farmers do that are doing you pick. I mean, because A, the quality is because the, the California strawberries bred for shipping not necessarily flavor we can we can focus on flavor and people are just like i mean we welcome to our farm this year over three thousand people in just three weeks and you're right it's a three-week season it's pretty much done before it starts and yeah. there are days that literally if you don't gauge the you pick level right in 24 hours you're just letting fruit rot in the vine which is incredibly not good because it's a yeah. waste of a lot of money <laughs> so um yeah. What talk to us about um, the farmers? So obviously the farmers are doing this that they're making money, but are the farmers really making money, or are they kind of caught in a cycle? They're they're caught in a cycle. Um, there's been a lot of shakeout in the strawberry industry. Um, first of all, there's been huge demographic changes. Mm. Um, when the strawberry industry was first um, began in California in the in the Pajaro Valley, there was a lot of Japanese Americans in it and a lot of um, Anglos, whites in it as well. Um, and um, many, many um, Japanese American farmers have now gotten out and many white people have gotten out. It's mainly Latinx growers. I don't mm. know the exact statistics. My guess is around 70%. Um, some who have been in the industry for a couple generations and some who are um, former farm workers who somebody came along and said, oh, you're you're ambitious, you're a hard worker, you could be a farm owner and I'll lend you a lot of money. And um, and then those often people go out, those are people who go out of business first. So um, it's the, I, it's not as profitable as it once and one, you can understand why. I mean, you have these really high land values and the and labor rates are, are getting really high, particularly with shortage. I'm sure they're having to wait, um, increase their wages at least somewhat. Um, and so, um, and they're having to think about alternatives to chloropicrin now, right? Um, and some of the alternatives are, are quite costly. So it's it's not easy. Um, and there has been, you know, every there's a lot of turnover in the industry. When I was doing the research, which is now, you know, five or six years ago, um, I would say 20, 30% turnover, turnover every year. Leaving. Mm -hmm. um, so high turnover, which means anytime there's turnover, that means you're probably those farmers are losing their shirt because you're buying new equipment and then selling it as a at a, usually a loss. Yeah, I mean it, it's a I mean it's it's kind of the the I mean the thing about strawberries is relatively low entry, which is why a lot of low resource farmers can get into it. It's not ah, there's not a lot of equipment yeah. actually because the fumigation <clears> is done a lot of I mean a lot of the services are done by contract, so you have. Mm -hmm. One company, TriCal, does all the fumigation, um, and you probably have a company that that levels your land or, or makes your beds. So you're that's all done kind of on a lease type basis. But you have to establish a relationship with the marketers, um, you know, whether mm -hmm. it's fiscal or or giant or whatever. Um, some of those marketers are 
like Driscoll's has much um, uh, stricter um, quality requirements. And so mm. a lot higher coal rates, people are tossing a lot of strawberries that work for Driscoll's. So there's, but they feel some, a lot of growers say, well, I can make more money for Driscoll's because they pay a little bit more. So, um, but the point is, is there's not a, it's not, you know, it's not like, it's not like, you know, investing in a, you know, $200,000 combine, you can get into the strawberry industry with not a lot of capital, but you have to do it all alone. So you can, you know, you can lease your land and hire you and do the, all the ground prep uh, contract with the fumigation company, et cetera. Um, and so you're just, you're just going into, into a lot of cash debt as opposed to, you know, huge mm-hmm. costs up front. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Joining me is Sash from Harvest Hosts, where they connect over 225,000 self-contained RVers to small businesses such as farms, just like yourself. Tell me, Sash, what is the different ways that Harvest Host relationship benefits the farm? Yeah, so we have a lot of great benefits of becoming a host. One of the main ones is revenue that you'll see back from our members. So rather than a, an overnight fee, our members actually come in and patronize your business. So whether you have products to sell or a tour or some type of experience to offer, our members come in and 100% of that profit that is spent on site goes back to your business. Harvest Host does not take a penny of that sale. Typically, it's about $50 per night spent. So you'll see if you have one or two RVers per night and a couple of days a week, that comes out to ten dollars to $15,000 of extra revenue per year, which again, we let that all to you. We don't take any penny of that. We're just here to support small businesses and bring our members to you by spending the night on your property in their RV. It's also a really great marketing opportunity. We have over 225,000 members. All of them are self-contained, so they don't need um, anything other than the place to spend the night, but you'll get that opportunity to be in front of them with your host profile on our website so they can check you out, see what you have to offer, and come spend the night in your property. Tell us about some of the farms that are on the platform. Yeah, some of our favorite farms. We have all kinds of alpaca farms. We have produce farms. We've got lavender farms, really great different experiences. Our members are all about the chance to come and engage and learn your trade and see what you do on a daily basis. A lot of them might live in a city or not actually know where their food comes from. So it's a really engaged audience who's seeking that experience and really excited to learn more about what you do. A great example of a farm that we have is Heard It Here Farm. They're in Cottageville, South Carolina. And their farm store, they see that our members come in and they actually spend twice as much on their products as a non-RV visitor. So it's really cool just to see our members be able to give back and being really engaged and interested in all the hosts that we work with. Awesome. Harvest Host connects over 225,000 self-contained RVers to a network of thousands of small businesses hosts. Hosts simply offer RVers a one-night stay on their property, and in return, RVers patronize the business while spending the night. Visit www.harvesthosts.com forward slash hosts to learn more and become a host today. Now, another thing to look at too there is the buyers set the price, right? Is there a market price? How does that work? Because I know that's another thing with when you're selling wholesale, it's kind of what the market dictates. And some of the years you can lose your shirt, other years you can make money. That's exactly right. The buyers set the price. Um, And, you know, there's different kinds of contracts that the buyers have with, um, with growers. I mean, I've heard of custom contracts where they just play, pay them a, um, a flat fee. I think that's pretty unusual. Um, so most growers are subject to the spot market, mm-hmm. which, which the buyers set, mm-hmm. and the you know the buyers you know have to struggle too because you know it, in in March April strawberries you know are the, are the first fruit coming on you know, coming into season you know after everybody's eaten apples and oranges all winter, but by June and July when the peaches are in. And all the stone fruit, then strawberries, strawberries are at their peak yeah. in terms of productivity and there's a lot of competition. And so that's when prices yeah. come and that's when they start taking a lot of strawberries and putting them into the freezer market for food processing. Yeah. Well, I don't think Driscoll's is hurting for, you know, profit. I mean, they, they did well, 2.6. Driscoll's does really well. Yeah. $2.6 billion in 2020. Oh, oh the, the buyers, the shippers do really, really yeah. well. But the farm, you know, you know, the Driscoll's doesn't 
doesn't farm any land. The only land they run is for um, is for research and R and D. Exactly. Wow. So yeah. all right. So they the growers do all the have all the risk, and Driscoll's takes well a fair amount of the profit. Yeah, I mean that's it's good for Driscoll. It's not good for the farmers. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now let's talk a little bit about organics because obviously organics is a, a key aspect. And I know a lot of people have interest in that. Talk to us about like what's happening with organics in California, especially related to strawberries. Okay. Well, um, so one of the responses to at least threats of having no fumigants, even though you can still use fumigants, is, is growers have tried experimenting with organics and some, I mean, strawberry growers, and some have um, been in organics for a long time. I'm, I'm just focusing on strawberries for a second, if that's okay. And yeah. organics. Yeah. Okay. So, um, but you know, there's really different ways of growing organic strawberries organically. Right. So, um, there are, you know, kind of more, you know, diehard organic growers, who use integrative farming methods, you know, who are composting or using cover crops and all that. And strawberries, you know, they they have highly diversified systems and strawberries are one of several crops, if not, you know, 50 crops, they grow in a season. Um, mm. And so they're able to uh, rotate strawberries with other crops, strawberries like brassicas, mm -hmm. Brassicas, like broccoli and cauliflower, have mild fumigation properties. Okay. So um, if you plant um, a season of broccoli or cauliflower, but they, they actually prefer broccoli before strawberries, you can, th those will control some of the pathogens. So you can grow or strawberries in this organic system, but you don't grow them year after year in the same block. Um, and and the economic model is from growing organically and and often doing direct marketing. So you're getting that's how you're staying in business. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of growers who are not doing diversified systems are also experimenting with organics. Um, some are trying non-fumigation techniques like anaerobic soil disinfestation which as far as I understand has had mixed results. Anaerobic soil disinfestation is also abbreviated ASD is when they, um, they uh, use um, a high carbon source like rice bran um, or molasses and put it into the soil and flood the soil and, and then put plastic over it. And that, um, that curbs a lot of the soil pathogens. It's resource intensive, water and plastic water in California. Um, so some have tried that. Some actually will um, do uh, terrible practices, which is find new ground. Maybe it's been pasture and plant strawberries. And when it gets infested, they just leave it, um, which is not really mm -hmm. a great practice. And, and, no. <laughs> and some have used um, mustard seed. I mean, there's other things or steam they're experimenting with. Some of the growers who are growing organically, but still keeping a monocrop of strawberries, they're they're rotating them every two to three years and, and following them. Mm -hmm. um, so different practices, or maybe the only, you know, you know, only 20% of their acreage is organic. So um, anyways, different practices, some more um, sustainable than others. Mm -hmm. um, um, but the, you know, the best way to grow them without pesticides is in the diversified farming systems, but that's very hard to do in super high value areas mm -hmm. like Salinas, like Watsonville, where you're competing with housing for your land. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so what is the status of those highly diversified farms that are growing like organically strawberries are they starting to grow or are they being phased out i mean are, are, is it too much competition steady i mean the ones i know of i'm a, I'm a farmer's market shopper so I, mm -hmm. I, I see the same farms year after year and i know who's in it and who's not 
um, from that perspective, um, they're they're doing okay. I mean, I think what's happened with organics more generally is there's been kind of this bifurcation where you have those um, people, th those who have kind of always been more de dedicated di to diversified systems and, and at least some direct marketing have are able to still charge re pretty fa fairly high prices. I mean, prices to keep them in business. It's not like they're they're you know making out big time, but they're keeping in business. And then you have all the other folks who have gotten into organics because a buyer asked them to, or because they saw a hot market and they're kind of going in and out with particular crops as prices seem good and using more input substitution methods. It, you know, they tend to go into crops that are easier to easier to grow organically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now you've recently started doing some new research about tech um, and their investment in food and agriculture. Talk to us a little bit about your research there. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so I got interested in, in tech in part through the strawberry industry, right? Because one of the solutions that strawberry growers were looking at as a way to deal with um, soil-borne pathogens is growing without soil soil right so putting it um strawberries in soilless substrate mm. um and often growing in trays so waist high which is an interesting um advantage for workers if you can pick strawberries waist high that's a lot easier than bending mm -hmm. over and running through fields um so I, I got interested in that because it's, you know, it's like kind of the first step to, to greenhouse agriculture. And also um, because the strawberry industry is so bitterly um, upset about work, um, labor costs, they're also looking at robotics, which are very difficult to develop for a very um, a mm -hmm. fresh fruit. So that's what got me into the into tech. Um, but I was also just, you know, I live in the in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I was just curious. And I went to one of these pitch events that are very mm -hmm. um, like the thing they do is they is they bring together, and they don't only do it for agriculture and food. I mean, this is the, the Silicon Valley model. You you know you you bring together new entrepreneurs and have them pitch their things. I went to one of these around food and agriculture, and I was floored by it. I was just floored to hear all the things that these people were saying that was like, oh, you don't know that that doesn't work. It's like, oh, we need to make farmers more productive. It's like, we want to make farmers more profitable. It's like, well, are you aware that maybe they're not profitable from being more productive? That that's kind of what the, mm. the, the technological treadmill that keeps putting growers in a bad position. So I was really kind of struck by these um, techies who had come into food and agriculture calling underinvested, actually, saying, oh, it's underinvested. We need to go. And it's not underinvested. As we know there's been technology in food and agriculture for hundreds of years and yeah. serious food technology for the last hundred. So I was really fascinated by that. And so I put together a grant um, and a collaborative project looking at Silicon Valley's um, forays into food and agriculture. Um, it's our, our project is like cross-sectoral, we try to look at what Silicon Valley can bring to food and agriculture, but there's many, many other researchers, colleagues that are working on different aspects, whether it's alternative proteins or big data. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's a big one in the Midwest in particular, because yeah, all the equipment is gathering data, um, you know, precision farming on steroids. So, 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 and, you know, CEA controlled environment agriculture is part of it. So, or, um, so there's a, there's a lot. And so I think our knowledge is more like um, a, a little about a lot of things and a lot of, and then a lot about a few things. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So with that, that research then, um, are you looking at the vertical farms? You're more looking at the autonomous harvesting? What's, well, what's That's what I'm saying. We're looking a little bit at all. I mean, we're really okay. looking at what Silicon Valley claims it can do for food and farming. And so like we do, we've gone to, you know, maybe a hundred of these pitch events and, and um, you know, you asked me at the beginning how, what, how I do my research when these events are, are fascinating. And it's one of the things we find fascinating about the pitch events is how startups, entrepreneurs, like they begin with a big problem, you know, it's like climate change, 
mm-hmm. um, resource use, food security, big, big, you know, the biggest problems in food and agriculture. And then they say, but here's my solution. And the solution is this, like, maybe it's a sensor. Mm, <laughs> yes. There's a, a pathogen in your food. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's lighting from controlled environment operation. Most yeah. likely, maybe it's a new kind of recycled protein bar, you know, I mean, oh, so, yeah, right. Right. And so there's a lot of like t- big talk about the big ch- challenges. A lot of what they're doing is actually pretty mundane. <laughs> so that's been super interesting. And the, and the stuff that's not mundane is the stuff that's the most controversial, like, you know, trying to ferment protein from CO2 mm-hmm. or cellular meat or all these other kind of moonshotty technologies that um, may or may not work, may or not be appealing to consumers, um, may not actually be environmentally better than the existing um, alternatives. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's what the, where the talk is. It's like, oh, we're going to completely transform the food world. We're going to decouple it from land. We don't need this. And yet that's a very small proportion of the sector relative to a lot of lot of mundane technologies that are not, mm-hmm. really not much new. Yeah, yeah. Now, are, are people investing in all of this, again, stupid stuff, as it were? Yeah, I mean, that's the question. I mean, when you go to pitch night, they're pitching to venture capital. And venture yeah. capital, you know, they're, they don't expect to, for every company to make a lot of money, but when, when they find one, they expect to get it, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of what they're pitching for is to please venture capital because venture capital wants like highly impactful technologies, but they also want to show that you're going to be profitable in three years. Yeah. Um, so it's not clear who's making money, actually. Um, lots of obviously lots of turnover there. It's a startup sector. So it's there's going to be turnover. Um, but, you know, I mean, the word on the street is no one's really making money. And so I think I mean, this is just a kind of a hypothesis I've been working on, working with the last week or two. But I think, I think the value proposition is that they're depending on a kind of scarcity to come, and you know, they're thinking eventually we won't be able to produce food the way we do, and so then we'll have the solution. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't know because I, I mean, how do you? I mean, I don't buy for a minute that a lot of these um, precision agricultural technologies make growers more profitable. They get a new gadget and they can they can look at a field that's and get information from the um, artificial intelligence that tells them something about the field so they can maybe water it a little bit less. I mean, yeah, can figure that out without that huge piece of equipment. Well, I mean, I think we need to go first back and look at the whole premise that California is the breadbasket of the U.S. or not the breadbasket, just the food basket, um, the vegetable basket maybe. And I think that, I mean, we're looking at, there's so many other problems with California right now. So to add these little tweaks to make it so much better, I think we're asking, we're, we're trying to, as you know, as they say, I forget who originally said this, we become very good at hitting the bullseye on the wrong target. Good one. Um, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, like that's, I think that's the thing. I mean, like we really should be, if we're focused on regional food s- supply, California yeah. could actually turn most of its acreage back into rangeland, which is much more, which would be way better. And you're not going to have the problems you have in California right now with, they're literally running out of water within a few months. Yeah. I mean, they don't like to talk about it, but they are. Yeah. Well, it rained this week. We're very happy, but um. <laughs> that's good <laughs> yeah but well but you know it's an it's interesting what you what you say that because i was just reading a book about digital farming and big data and i was thinking this doesn't really apply to california at all because like you know yeah it's not like there's not commodity crop growers in california there are mm-hmm. um, but there's not a lot of it i mean and 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 this you know the kind of what precision farming can offer particularly in terms of big data analytics you know that are sourced from thousands of farms i mean mm-hmm. that's not going to help a strawberry grower um or a or a citrus yeah. lettuce grower. And so what California wants in terms of the growers was they want, they want robotics, right? They want to get, they want to automate labor. They want, um, they want solutions to, I mean, they do want 
yeah. alternatives to pesticides, as they should. You know, they do want the kind of biological alternatives, but th this paper I just wrote this week, finished this week, they're not, that, that's uh, like not very much of what's coming out of Silicon Valley. A lot of it is that are the digitals and a lot of them aren't even really supporting farming. Like, mm -hmm. you know, we, we, we built this entire database and a lot of the solutions are just like, you know, Airbnb type applications for like kit use of kitchens or tractors i mean they're not or they're like um oh wow yeah digitalizing farmers transactions i mean they're not even about addressing real problems yeah so it's a lot of like oh we're from silicon valley we have you know we have this application how what problem can we solve yeah well right. farmers are always a hot topic because they feed the world and so they everyone's like oh i'll just do something with farmers and it will look good on my my resume oh my gosh you created this new sensor for a farmer well yeah. fortunately you're right it was just literally to put that on the resume um yeah. interesting all right so your book your book again is called wilted the pathogens i'm just scrolling through it right here um Pathogens, chemicals, and the fragile future of the strawberry industry. And um, wrote that in 2009. And you said you had a paper 2019 that 2019 it came out. 2000, sorry, 2019, yes. And any more books on the horizon for you? Um, yes, I'm working on one now called The Problem with Solutions. <laughs> it's about the very thing we're talking about. Okay. Yeah, right. uh, we have a bunch of articles on the tech sector, but this one will be geared more toward a broader public. And it's just about this very thing, coming up with solutions that mm. problems that don't exist or that are completely mismatched or what you said, which I really like, which is you hit the bullseye for the wrong target. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah. Well, Julie, anything else you'd like to share before we go? Well, that, that's good. Thanks. Yeah, no, I feel like we covered a lot. Yeah. And I unfortunately, you know, I think a lot of it is negative or just hard news to hear because there's so many problems broken. And I hate to end on that. And I guess the only thing I would say is this is just another reason why small local food systems are where we need to be headed. And yeah. you should be growing, you know, the food for your your community. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on your show. I appreciate you coming on. All right. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. Hey, Thriving Farmers. Here's a quick heads up to save the date, December 1st through 4th for our Thriving Farmer Summit value added. If you're looking to add income to your farm with simple proven strategies, go to www.farmsummits.com and drop your email. Our summit series have been viewed by over a hundred thousand farmers and get rave five-star reviews. In this summit, we'll share detailed strategies for farm ferments, herbal foraging, tinctures, pickles, farm kitchens, foodscaping, mushroom jerky, and mushroom kits, developing add-on shares for your CSA, how to publish books with your farm story, starting your own USDA processing plant, and starting a farmer co-op. Over 35 speakers are sharing their wisdom. Go to farmsummits.com to reserve your spot today. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer Podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.